So I have this uh, friend, good friend, uh, Christian, who um, every time I see him, he always says, welcome to paradise, brother. That's always his typical uh, greeting. Welcome to paradise, brother. And uh, he's a guy I've ministered with, shoulder to shoulder with for a long time. And in some ways, I can see where he's coming from, uh, that, that the Christian life, when lived um, for the Lord, uh, I can see how that's paradise. Uh, you know, we have the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we believe that indwells us to give us the opportunity to empowers us to live for Him um, and to minister to other people. We can love people the way that we've never loved people before. As a Christian, we know we're sure of our ultimate destination of heaven. We don't have to worry about that. The Bible says we can be confident of that. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, we also know that God will continue the work he started in us. Philippians 1.6 says that. So even though no one's perfect and we fall back sometimes in some old stuff we used to do, and uh, God will bring about the work that he's promised and bring us to, uh, uh, to himself and transform us into the image of Christ. So I can understand why he says that this is a paradise. Um, the Bible continues to say we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We get to meet here together as a church and encourage each other, support each other, and learn um, from the Word. Um, and uh, of the two things that God has exalted above all else, His name and His Word, two things above all else in all of creation, we all, probably all of us, have at least one copy of one of those things. He's exalted above everything else, His Word. So I can totally see why... Uh, why, um, you know, welcome to paradise, how this world is paradise. But when I think about the original paradise, Garden of Eden, and the paradise of heaven the Bible talks about that's coming, this just doesn't compare. Uh, Even on the best day, uh, living for the Lord as a Christian and having all these things that we just talked about um, uh, falls quite short of this paradise that... uh, the Bible describes at the beginning and at the end. Uh, in addition to that, boy, just all the stuff that goes on in the world that I don't have to argue much for, you guys know, but uh, just the stuff going on even in our own country, uh, the things that cause a lot of stress and you know, unemployment and uh, unrest in nations around the world. People were talking about climate change. I don't know how true that is, but um, you know, the Middle East, all the stuff that's going on over there. Um, continual threat of terrorism right here. You know, our world is not at peace. Um, so beyond these things, the world's increasingly hostile to Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that in all kinds of places, Nigeria and around the world, and even here, uh, some of the more Christian nations, if I want to call them that, um, that have been more friendly and open to Christianity. Uh, been some shifts um, recently uh, in the U.S. and also in uh, Britain as well. Uh, I was reading an article, two things I found interesting. Uh, last year there was a Bible study that met in a, in a home, like we do. We have our connection groups that meet in homes and just open the Bible and we talk about the sermon. They did the same thing. It was in California. And uh, they, the authority, the local government shut them down. Uh, they said they can't, can't have Bible study in people's houses. I thought, wow, that's crazy. Um, but it's happening here. Um, then there was a college student, Christian college student at a secular university who was sharing his faith with his fellow students, fellow classmates, and they, they said he can't do that. 
But then they said, but if, you, if you're going to continue, you need to pay a fine every time you do that. Uh, so I don't know what, what money he has left, but hopefully he's continued uh, to obey the Lord in that. Um, so as alarming as these things are, I think probably because we're founded, our nation's founded at least minimally on Judeo-Christian values. It's hard to imagine some of that is happening here. But the Bible describes you know, some of these things, the way the world's going, that you know, this is really just the beginning of it. That it's just, you know, as the world continues and as we reach time towards the end, hostility towards Christ and his followers, uh, towards the Bible and living out the Bible, uh, hostility will continue to increase. So uh, maybe a more theologically accurate greeting for my buddy is to say, welcome to paradise lost. Um, but Paul wrote to the Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.1, he wrote to them, walk worthy of your calling. Um, and basically, as believers in Christ, uh, we're called to this incredible position that we don't deserve, right? We're sinners. Uh, we deserve separation and punishment from God. God talks about the place called hell. Um, and uh, we deserve that. But he's elevated us to this amazing position of saint, and he adopts us as children. And he says, walk worthy of your calling. You don't deserve it, but live, live in that calling. Align yourselves with biblical commands and principles. So one question I have this morning is, as believers in Jesus Christ, uh, how do we live in such a way as to please God in a world that is increasingly becoming uh, hostile to our faith? Um, and maybe you haven't experienced a lot of that here just yet, but um, you know, it's happening in our own country, and, uh, and it will continue to the end. Um, so how do we live in a way that we can please the Lord uh, in a world that is becoming more and more against us. So if you have Bibles this morning, or you can look on the screen, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is a little bit further than the middle. Um, Psalms, you'll probably open to Psalms if you open up in the middle, and then Isaiah's in there, and it's a little bit past Isaiah, maybe 60, 80 pages, something like that, past Isaiah. But Daniel's a great example, uh, just a great example of a man of faith in the Bible. Uh, The book of Hebrews mentions him in what we call the Hall of Faith, not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. These uh, men and women of of old that uh, love the Lord and live for him even in the the midst of difficult um, circumstances. And in Hebrews 11, it describes Daniel as uh, a man who, through his faith in God, shut the mouths of lions. Uh, He's also listed among Noah and Job in the book of Ezekiel as uh, um, one of the three greatest Old Testament men of faith. Um, So this is Daniel. Now, Daniel was a Jewish teenager living in Israel um, when Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon, came down from the north, and Nebuchadnezzar swallowed up all kinds of land, and they had the largest uh, world empire to date. The Babylonians did. And uh, Daniel was a Jewish teenager living at that time. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar took all these kids and uh, other survivors up to Babylon, away from their homeland. And uh, for almost 20 years, Nebuchadnezzar would come down with more soldiers and haul off more people uh, to Babylon. Um, so thousands of Jews had to start new lives uh, in a different city. And uh, in the very opening chapter, verse one or verse four of chapter one of Daniel, I'll read it to you. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar gave this order to the chief of his officials. And this is what he said. He said, bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, uh, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And Nebuchadnezzar ordered his official to teach the youths the literature and language of the Chaldeans. It's another word for the Babylonians. So Daniel was evidently one of these elite young people possessing extraordinary aptitude for learning. This is like one of the gifted kids in your class uh, when you were growing up. Um, aptitude for learning, they had to learn a new language. And ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, if we can indoctrinate these kids, then they'll serve us. If we can make them forget about uh, their past, their families, their homeland, we'll teach them our literature, our language, we'll teach them our religion, and uh, we can maybe get their hearts and they'll serve us. Um, and so to this end, they were trained in their schools and their customs, their government, um, they were even given new names. They say uh, Daniel was renamed Bel Tessazar, which means Bel protects the king. Bel was the Babylonians' chief god, like the highest god, and they had multiple gods. But they renamed him Bel protects the king. So they're trying to get rid of Daniel's uh, Hebrew name, which means God is my judge. They're trying to make Daniel and all these young people forget everything that they knew uh, before they were taken away. And everything about Daniel's new life reinforced this notion that he lived in a culture that was against the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel lived in exile for 75 years uh, and never returned to his homeland again. Um, we walked through the book of Nehemiah. Um, we understand that there was people living in exile that came back to the land of Israel, uh, built walls. Uh, we had that big series in the fall. Um, even when people came back, Daniel wasn't one of them. Uh, they think that he was probably too old to make the trip. So he would have been a very old man at that point in time. And yet he stayed in exile and continued to honor and serve his God. Now God gave him intellectual abilities which caused him to stand out uh, as an extraordinary wise man in a, in a land really that was known for its wise men. So Babylon's a land known for wise men, and here's Daniel that uh, is wiser than all. And uh, God gives him so much favor that in the years of his captivity, 75 years, he serves as a personal advisor for kings Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar of Babylon. And when the next regime came in, God gave him favor again, and he serves for a personal advisor for Darius and Cyrus, kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. So Daniel was a high-ranking official in a wicked government, but he wasn't corrupted by his status, um, power that he had, or the culture, and he didn't turn his back on God or compromise his faith or convictions, uh, which is kind of remarkable, right? In light of the many political scandals we have today, almost every week you hear about some other politician that's smoking crack or you know doing all kinds of stuff, right? Um, seems like all the time. Uh, so it's no small thing that Daniel could live in a culture that was absolutely opposed to, uh, to the Lord, to biblical living, and uh, remain a man of integrity. Um, I said Daniel's name means God is my judge. And uh, he really lived that out day to day. Um, so he recognized that God sees everything, right? 
the word for that is um, he's omniscient. He knows everything. But he sees everything. And the Bible says that he holds people accountable for how they live. So uh, when we all die and we all pass on from here, we all will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. Um, Revelation 20, there's two different judgments the Bible describes. Revelation 20, really at the end of the Bible, describes a scene in which those who have rejected Christ have to stand before God and account for their lives. Um, and that, that judgment is for uh, punishment. So all those people will, uh, are not entering heaven. Um, but then Paul writes that Christians also will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So not a judgment where God's deciding, okay, do I let you in or not? The, the, the judgment there where we stand before Jesus Christ as believers is for rewards. So we already know we're getting into heaven, and God is going to judge us based on how we live for him in this world for the purpose of rewards. And I don't know what rewards are in heaven exactly. I would think heaven would be the, the best reward there is, but apparently there's something even greater to look forward to which ought to motivate us for uh, obedience to the Lord now. And so, um, but in either, either way, the point I'm making is that Christians and those who are not Christians, all of us will appear before God to give an account for our lives. Um, so Daniel lived his life mindful of the fact that God was his judge and that he would have to account for the way he lived. And this is the main point of this morning's sermon, that living out our Christian faith mindful of the fact that God is our judge. Uh, Daniel's experience um, living in exile illustrates four characteristics of those who truly live mindful that God is their judge. And there's probably a lot more, but just in this, in this text here, I'll give them to you now and then we'll walk through them. But first, people who live mindful that God is their judge, they honor God in all that they do. They experience opposition as a result of their faith. They remain immovable in the face of opposition. And finally, they entrust the consequences of their obedience to God into God's sovereign hands. So we'll walk through these. So number one, Daniel lived his life mindful that God was his judge and he honored God in all that he did. So we'll pick up, read a couple of verses and we'll stop. We'll do that, but we'll read one and two here. Chapter six says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So Daniel records at the end of chapter 5, right before this, that Babylon, who originally took him and all those kids and other people up away from their homeland, Babylon has been overthrown by a new uh, kingdom the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, And now a new man is in charge, this guy, Darius. Um, And uh, this was the largest empire to date. It was even bigger than Babylon. You probably learned about it in World Civ when you were in high school, if you remember that. Um, But there was a great need at that time for Darius, who came in, to really get control of things. I mean, they came in militarily and, and, and took control, but to really get control of the whole area. So it says he appoints 120 satraps. These are like governors or princes uh, that can govern specific areas, uh, and then to keep these 120 men accountable because the propensity to tend towards corruption, again, in politics, he appoints three guys over top of these guys so that they would be accountable to these three. And Daniel is one of the three 
that uh, he places over these 120 uh, men. I found that, as I was reading that, in the ancient world, when a uh, conquering king, king came in and took over, he would often use uh, the former governors in his new uh, regime. If they were faithful to the other guy, they would often just use those guys. They had the experience, the leadership, and they would entrust those men in the new um, government. So when control was passed from Babylon, uh, Darius took that. Most of the officials in the previous administration retained their same posts, um, and even Daniel. Under Babylon, Daniel was a third ruler in the kingdom, um, even though he was an exile originally. And, uh, and Darius here appoints him as one of the top three officials as well. Uh, verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents, and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel's work as a commissioner began to get the attention of Darius. Here's this new king, but Daniel's standing out. Uh, He began to distinguish himself from all the rest. Um, In Daniel 5, again, this is back one regime, um, but this is something that Daniel began to stand out as well, and that one as well. And the Babylonian queen recognizes at that time, and she tells her husband, uh, she says about Daniel, this is how she describes him, there's a young man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in him. So it's no wonder that Darius wanted Daniel uh, to appoint, wanted to appoint Daniel over the entire ruling body. There just was nobody like Daniel in this kingdom. He was far superior in wisdom, intellect, and reasoning. But not everybody was thrilled about this move. And we read in verse 4 that a plot arises to prevent it from happening. Uh, it says, Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. So these guys come together, the 120, and they say, we've got to get Daniel out of here. We don't like this guy. So we've got to find an area where we can accuse him before the king, before he makes this decision. Most of these men were of Babylonian descent, while Daniel again was this uh, exile, this prisoner of war taken. Uh, so he was different, um, not Babylonian by birth. But again, God had given him an extraordinary mind. And Nebuchadnezzar appointed him of as ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And he was over all of these wise men. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was also impressed with Daniel. And when he became king, he made him the third highest ruler in Babylon. So for over 65 years, here's Daniel, really originally like a POW, uh, prisoner of war. uh, And he's in this, uh, in a higher position than all the rest of the men of Babylon are. 65 years from one king to the next. And so it seemed appropriate, I suppose, at this time, we have this new king come in, and they think, well, we've got a new king. He doesn't really know Daniel. Maybe this is our chance to get rid of him. Um, so motivated by, I'm sure, jealousy, malice, the satraps, commissioners, they plot together to bring an accusation against 
Daniel before Darius. So they conduct a secret investigation into all of his past dealings with the kings of Babylon, like a smear campaign. We're going to dig up dirt on this guy. We know there's stuff here, and we're going to present it to the king and tarnish Daniel's good name. But as they look through the course of his life and his dealings with the uh, past kings of Babylon, they find that his life and his work, they're above reproach. Uh, In a lifetime of government service, no negligence or corruption could be found. And these are guys that are digging for stuff and they cannot find anything. The secret to his character? I think Daniel lived mindful of the fact that God was his judge. He lived by God's standards and he was found faithful when tested. So, as believers in Jesus Christ, God is calling us to do what is right according to his principles, right? So, he's calling us to faithfulness, not only you know, to himself, but in all the spheres of our lives, the people we work for, our family members, um, all these uh, circles of context that we have. Paul writes in, to the Colossians, in all that we do, we do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So, Daniel is one that didn't take shortcuts. He didn't um, you know, work hard while the boss was looking, but when he wasn't, uh, you know, slack off and let things slide. He didn't exaggerate numbers to make things look a little bit better. Um, God was his judge, and his life reflected his theology. What he believed about God impacted his life, and he knew he would stand and had given account for his life at the end, and he was going to honor God in all that he did. So the first thing we learned from Daniel this morning is that when you live life mindful of the fact that God is your judge, you honor God in all that you do. So when God is your judge, you live by the highest moral standard. I remember when I was a young, a young person, like teenager, and all the Christians at church would, uh, that were dating would, would you know, be thinking, how close can I get to the edge without going over with my girlfriend? You know? The opposite is true, man. How far can you stay away from that? You know? um, how close can we live to God's holiness? A great question to ask. Uh, uh, Jacob asked one time, I thought it was great, is this holy? Uh, should I do this or not? Well, is it holy? You know, it's a great question to help determine uh, what is the right thing to do in the situation. So a question I think we should be asking ourselves regularly, um, what does God expect from me in every area of my life? Um, you know, we can't divorce our faith from on Sunday morning you know, from the rest of the week. We're believers and we live that out. So it's God's will that we set ourselves apart for service to him. And it goes for everything that we do and every you know, situation we find ourselves in. Um, so how does living mindful that God is our judge impact the way that I work for my boss, uh, my attitude with my employees at work? How does it impact how well I do my job? Am I just trying to do enough or am I doing it for the Lord? Um, how does it impact the way that I uh, speak to my spouse uh, when we're frustrated with each other? How does it impact the way that I parent, uh, that I train my kids? How does it impact the way that I handle stressful situations? Um, so our theology, what we believe about God, determines how we live our lives. And being mindful that God is your judge will cause you to seek to honor God in all that you do. So, Point number two, 
Daniel lived his life mindful of the fact that God was his judge, and he experienced opposition as a result of his faith. So we'll read 5 through 9. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So the commissioners, satraps, they have this plot. They're trying to dig up dirt on them. We can't find anything. So they come to the end of the investigation. They have nothing to bring. How are we going to get rid of this guy? Uh, In all of Daniel's governing, there's not even a hint of evil. Nothing they could twist to make look. They, they, They couldn't come up with anything. So the entire ruling body comes together before the king, commissioners, satraps, prefects, high officials, counselors, governors, all these guys. And uh, they don't care anything for the welfare of the state or for the truth, obviously, for the king. And they say, all of us have this idea. But they didn't all have that idea because no one had consulted Daniel. Daniel was one interestingly left out. Uh, But the king would have assumed that Daniel was a part of it. We all have thought of this. And we want to present this to you. And Daniel wasn't left out. And this was the idea that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So from history, we know that there was nothing really unusual about people worshiping um, kings. Uh, we even see that today a little bit. North Korea, they kind of worship their, their president over there. And uh, Persian kings, nothing really unusual about that. Um, really would have been seen as a pledge of loyalty. Like, we love you, king, we hope you live forever, and you know we're going to make you, kind of elevate you as a god. And uh, Darius, obviously, was greatly influenced. That would have made him feel really good, and he was happy to sign off on that. As far as we know, up to this point in time, uh, in Daniel's experience as an exile, except for uh, the events in chapter 3 of Daniel with the... Um, big gold statue where Nebuchadnezzar made the Jews worship and bow down to a statue. With the exception of that, there's no other indication that Daniel's faith was ever an issue. That practicing his faith, that praying, that um, reading the Bible, anything like that was ever an issue for him or for anybody else except for that one exception a few chapters ago. But as far as we know, the Jews were free to practice their faith. Um, And the throng of governing officials, they knew how important Daniel's faith was to him. Um, And they knew that even with the threat of death, that he would not disobey his God. So it's not like they were um, trying to get him to stop praying to his God. They didn't care. It was polytheistic. It didn't really matter. Your God's fine. Yours is fine. It didn't matter. They weren't actually trying to get him to stop praying. They knew he would never stop praying. They knew that if he had to choose between um, obeying God or, and, uh, and with that being torn limb, limb from limb by lions, that, that he would choose to obey God. 
Um, so they never expected him to recant his faith, stop praying. Um, and they weren't really opposed to Judaism. They were just opposed to Daniel. And as he was a Jew who loved the Lord with all his heart, that was how they were going to take him out. And I find it interesting that they knew him well enough to know that nothing would prevent him from praying to his God. I just find it fascinating that his enemies knew he would never defy his God. Uh, And I wonder, one question for us is, as I reflect on it myself, uh, do the people in my life, do the people in our lives know um, the seriousness of our commitment to obey our God? That if push came to shove and something came down to it, do people in my life know that I will obey the Lord? Um, that I'm committed to God. Um, so, for instance, at work, is your reputation one that your coworkers know that even in a stressful situation, you're going to do the right thing? Um, that first and foremost, you're committed to Christ and to pleasing Him. Um, the conspirators knew that Daniel's faith was not only an important aspect of his life, they knew it was his life. Um, and they knew that Daniel would keep God at the center, even to the point of death. So Daniel lived his life mindful of the fact that God was his judge, and he experienced opposition as a result of his faith. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, we don't see a lot of that here, and I'm so thankful that we don't. Uh, I don't like getting beat up. I don't like getting, you know... Pummeled. It's not something I enjoy. Um, and I'm thankful we don't, but, um, but we're seeing more, you know, we're seeing these uh, shift even in our own country. And so if it does happen, and when it does happen, uh, you know, we ought to expect it and not be thrown off by that. Um, uh, you know, as our world continues to move further away from Christ, um, Peter urges the Christians at his time, Don't be surprised at the hour of testing that's come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. But if if you suffer, rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Um, So when you live mindful of the fact that God is your judge, you'll expect opposition. You'll experience opposition. You won't be surprised by it um, pertaining to your faith. Um, So Daniel lived life mindful of the fact that God was his judge. And... Point number three, he remained immovable in the midst of the opposition. Uh, 10 and 11 say this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So Daniel evidently hears that the edict's been signed. No one can pray to anybody except for this King Darius for the next 30 days. And what does Daniel do? He goes right to his bedroom and he prays. Uh, so it's not like he um, made a mistake. He knew full well what he was doing. Uh, he had habitually prayed probably three times a day throughout his entire life. He wasn't going to stop now just because they say it's illegal. And he knew and understood that If he was found out, it would cost him his life. Um, But he continued anyway, just as he had before. Uh, I suppose he could have 
compromise a little bit, you know, like maybe I go in there, well, I'll just keep the windows closed today, you know. I won't pray out loud today. I don't know if he prayed out loud, but, um, you know, maybe I'll wait till nighttime to pray so no one can see in here. Again, none of those things are wrong, but for Daniel to change anything at that point when he had done that his entire life would have been a sign that he had lost his faith in God, that he was intimidated by the edict, um, he, that he had compromised his convictions. And, uh, and I think the real key to Daniel's moral success, those 60, 70 years or so that he was a govern, governing official, was his prayer life. So in spite of being a busy executive, if I can call him that, um, with many demands and pressures and stress and responsibility, Daniel returned to his house three times a day to pray. And even after the edict, he continued to do so. So here's a godly man, not a perfect man, no one's perfect, but a man who loved God and was, wanted to honor him. And he was praying. Not, um, not, as a, uh, not pleading for his life, God, please keep me alive. He wasn't um, pleading before being martyred or anything. He was just continuing a faithful ministry in prayer that had characterized his long life. In verse 11, we read that by this, uh, the conspirators, they decide ahead of time, hey, we know Daniel's going to pray. When he hears this, he's going to go pray anyway. It's not going to stop him. So we'll go find a spot where we can see him or hear him so we can uh, have something to accuse him before Darius. And they do, and they take the news uh, to the king. In verse 12 through 15, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, didn't you sign an injunction that anyone who makes, makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you've signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So first they approach the king and they just want to make sure, didn't you sign something? Didn't we, just, we just did this, right? We made this new law. And with the king's assurance, they proceed to accuse Daniel. Um, they introduce him not as one of the presidents, which the king has set up, not as their boss in a high position, but as low as they can. This is a children of exile. Uh, the Babylonians took them over, and, and now the Medes and Persians have taken over the Babylonians. And here's a guy that uh, you know, has no standing at all. They try to make him as low as possible. And they accuse him of disregarding the king and his decree, not once, but doing it three times a day, continuing to do it. Uh, blatant uh, disobedience and defile. And upon hearing the news, it's interesting that this king, this secular, uh, wicked king, when he hears that it's Daniel, he's distraught. Uh, Daniel was his most trusted advisor. And uh, now Daniel was being accused of a law punishable, breaking a law punishable by death. 
So Darius gets to work immediately looking for any way he can get Daniel out of this. Uh, if only they had a presidential pardon uh, like we do here, but, um, but the governors remind him that Daniel has no way out. So once the edict was written up and signed, it became a law which cannot be changed. Um, the book of Esther, which is uh, back a couple hundred pages in the Bible, um, confirms that a royal edict in the Medo-Persian Empire um, was binding. In that book, one of the king's advisors said this, uh, If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by the king, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be revoked. So this was a done deal. It was locked in. For some reason, that was the law that they had. If the king signs it, it's gold. You cannot change it. Um, so Darius was resigned to the fact that there was nothing he could do to save Daniel's life. So Daniel lived his life mindful of the fact God was his judge, and yet he remained immovable in the face of opposition. Um, even when the opposition, uh, when it possibly could have resulted in his death, and not a, maybe a quick death, a scary one, uh, lions, I could think of a lot better ways to go. Um, but he was immovable. Uh, and those who live as though God is their judge remain unmoved, because they know that they answer to a higher authority to whom they will give account. Finally, Daniel lived his life mindful that God was his judge, and he entrusted the results of his obedience to God into God's sovereign hands. Read 16 and 17. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, if you've read this book, of uh, Daniel chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge gold statue, some say like 90 feet high, and he commands everybody to bow down and worship it. And uh, three young men won't, won't do it. And uh, he brings them in. He's about to burn them alive. And he gives them one more opportunity to, to change their mind and to bow down. And this is what they say. They say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. So we don't know if uh, Daniel was given an opportunity. Sounds like he wasn't. Sounds like it was, he was just going into the lion's. Um, but it's clear that Daniel wasn't interested in saving himself. He's not pleading for his life. He's not saying, well, give me one more chance, or I didn't know the law. Um, he had trusted God in his life through the whole thing, and he was going to trust God in his death. And we'll read 18 and 20. It says, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the, lions, to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel had lost, Darius believed he lost a dear advisor, his most trusted advisor. He couldn't even sleep. Uh, I doubt that happens much when presidents have to you know, some guy in Texas probably is executed. Texas executes more.
people anybody, but uh, I doubt that presidents lose any sleep over that here. But Darius cannot sleep, and he spends the night fasting, hoping that Daniel's God would protect him, but not at all certain that he would. And at the first light of day, Darius hurries to the den and calls out in a distressed voice, that I think because he didn't actually think Daniel was going to be alive, hoping against hope, uh, probably expecting to hear nothing but the roar of lions in return. In 21 through 23, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. To everyone's surprise, right? Uh, It's kind of an understatement. The king was exceedingly glad. Uh, To everyone's surprise, Daniel did answer the king in a calm, uh, polite voice, the way that you would address a king. Oh, king, live forever. Relaxed. Uh, He answers Darius with any sign of distress. He's not saying, get me out of here. You know, he hasn't been fending the lions off all night. He's not lucky to be alive. Uh, He's alert and calm. He's trusted in his God. Uh, Also interesting here is that while he refused to obey the edict, which was uh, a crime according to this new law, the act of disobedience was not a crime. Daniel could say confidently that although he knowingly defied the king and broke the law, he committed, he had no, committed no crime before the king. Uh, someone once said that not all sin is a crime, and not all crime is a sin. Uh, but the Bible makes it clear that we're to obey the government, the rules of the land, insofar as they don't prevent us from uh, obeying our Lord. So if they do prevent us from like meeting together in some countries, they meet together anyway. Uh, they're not going to disobey God. Daniel's obedience to God was the priority. And in obeying God, he had also committed no crime. So it reminds us again that Daniel's conspirators, they can't find anything against him until they find it against, um, until they find him praying. Uh, but before God, he's innocent. You may know the end of this story. It's a little gory, but I'll read it. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be To the end, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel lived his life mindful of the fact that God was his judge and he was willing to entrust the consequences of his obedience to God. Even if that meant lions, he would entrust the results of his obedience into God's sovereign hands. So God is commanding all of us to obey him, right? At all times, in all situations, circumstances. And I think it starts when we live mindful of the fact that God is our judge, that we will 
stand before him and give an account for the way we lived our lives, the decisions that we made. Just to review again, when you live life mindful of the fact that God is your judge, one, you honor God in all that you do, you will experience opposition as a result of your faith. You may not be cast into lions then, but you may experience uh, some of these other things that we experience sometimes, mocking. You really believe that, little things like that, and it will continue to get worse, I suspect, to the end. Um, but you'll experience opposition. Third, you will remain immovable in the midst of opposition. You know whom you serve. And finally, fourth, you entrust the consequences of your obedience to God into God's sovereign hands. So if you're a student at a college, God's commanded you to share Christ, and it costs money to do so. All right, here's some money. I'm going to keep doing this. Entrust the consequences of your obedience to God. So as we enter a new year, I just really urge you, urge you guys to live your lives mindful that God is your judge. He's the one who sees and rewards those who place their trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you see all. Sometimes we, we are down here. Sometimes if we feel far from you um, and we wonder if you see anything at all, the way life goes sometimes. Remind us, God, that you are with us and that you see and that you care and that you're working behind the scenes and help us to trust you in that. Help us to live mindful that you um, are our judge and uh, may we live to please you in every way that we can. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.